Welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Damian Wilpitz. I'm a life science research manager and consultant. I'm here to help scientists and to help those who are managing to help science be successful. In this radio podcast, we'll explore current strategies and practices taken by some of the most respected life science leaders of today. We'll be hosting guests who lead independent or academic research labs, startup pharmaceuticals and biotech entrepreneurs, and other operational support leaders, VPs, chief operating officers, managers, and the like. We'll explore some of the following lessons, what steps they've taken to reach their current scientific goals, what unexpected challenges they faced along the way, and what tools and skills that have been critical to their success. We'll listen to what advice they would give to those who are willing to follow them and to pursue a career in leading life sciences. Again, thank you for joining and welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is episode number three. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Joseph Italiano. Joe is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital. His group is studying the molecular mechanisms of platelet formation, which function like the band-aid of the bloodstream. Low platelet counts, otherwise known as thrombocytopenia, is a disorder that many cancer patients develop due to chemotherapy or bone marrow transplants. His team is trying to get a better understanding of how platelets are formed. Their hope is that their research can help to develop therapies for patients who suffer from this disorder. He's leading and mentoring an amazing team of dedicated individuals in order to make this happen. He's an amazing and charming guy. I've had the pleasure of working with him and have seen him develop his team and research so that their discoveries can serve real world issues. Let's chat with him today and hear about his journey and see what awesome lessons he can teach us so that we can be successful in our life science journey. We know his science, but what does it take to develop a new generation of life science leaders? Let's listen in. Welcome. Thank you so very much, Joe, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I think I already told the audience how I've known you for some time now, and it's been really great working with you for this past few years. And I want the audience to get to know you as well as I get to know you. Maybe not as well as I know you, but <laughs> one of the things I would love to, to get them to know is your journey. So first things first, like, uh, introduce yourself. Hi, yeah, my name is uh, Joseph Italiano. I am an uh, associate professor at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I am a uh, scientist here. I uh, have an interest in the cytoskeleton and uh, cell biology, and my current interests are understanding uh, the role on blood platelets and how blood platelets, the band-aids of the blood, are, are produced. <laughs> well, I think... We all could use a little bit of Band-Aid some, from time to time, especially the uh, inflicting pains we go through many <laughs> times, even in the academic industry yes. or just the academic field. But let's talk about much more on the behind-the-scenes uh, side of your science and research because for those that do know you, they kind of follow your publications and they follow your science. However, those that actually kind of want to follow in your, uh, in your footsteps, like... 
what were the, some of those first few steps for like for you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, all uncharted territory when you're starting out. So you make a lot of mistakes. You're banging your head up against the wall constantly, but trying to figure out what works and, and, and what doesn't work. And I guess the real difficult part is that we're all trained to be scientists as a PhD, and then we're thrown into this sort of management role and learning how to, to manage you know, technicians, postdocs, and fellows can be, can be difficult. And I mean, I think one of the things that's been hardest to try and to develop a vision for your lab, a sort of big picture. Uh, oh, really? To, yeah, to, to, to see where you want to take the lab. I mean, every day there's the, you know, the grind of doing specific experiments and sorting through them, troubleshooting, but, um, you know, I found one of the major challenges was to have sort of a, a vision for the lab and to get everyone on board. Um, and one of the ways to address that that I, that I thought was very helpful um, uh, in the early early 2000s, uh, in addition to working at the Brigham, I started to work uh, at uh, Children's Hospital. I was working with the late Judah Folkman, who was the father of the field of angiogenesis. And Judah would have this uh, annual retreat that would bring everyone together where um, you had to get away from your experiments for a day and get away from the daily grind and just think big picture um, and come up with some of these ideas that would completely transform the, the field. You know, I know that for junior investigators, the tendency is to play it safe, do experiments that are highly feasible and, and, and not sort of dream big, but I think you have to do that today to, to survive. So, um, you know, once a year, we pack the lab up and, and go somewhere and uh, have a have a nice lunch, but really just think big picture about where the field's going to be in five or ten years, and how are we going to take it there? You know, we talk a lot about retreats and how retreats can kind of like stimulate these kinds of big picture visions, if you will. But what, from your perspective? What is it about retreats that uh, offers that? Do you think it's just a change in the environment, or is it much more um, kind of like levels out the playing field? I think this is one of the things that, like, some people, they just do some uh, big visions within, within every three months, every six months, just even within the lab itself. But do you think that off-location uh, off kinds of... Um, kinds of, um, what you call it, retreats kind of help for that? I, I think it I think it helps to go somewhere where you're not distracted at going to check that western blot or, or going to look at your email or constantly, but I, I think what, what really does it is the interaction between everyone in the group. Everyone is forced to sort of sit there in a, in a very relaxed setting to talk about how they would move this project forward. And I, I think it's about getting everyone together, getting the group sort of functioning as sort of one big engine and, and towards one common goal. Oh, gosh. So the reason why I kind of was not going to lie, a little bit of a setup on that part is because you're right, it does, the change of location can kind of help dis, uh, from the distractions. And it really hyper-focuses everybody on the team mentality and the purpose of the retreats. 
I think I've seen retreats that have been done in-house and you're right people just go right back to their uh, their job and just try to like get things done go back to their uh, western blots and try to like make sure experiments are done and it kind of fractures that like creative uh, thought process and so I think I love how you you were talking about this vision but what are some of the things that you found that like uh, implementing the steps to uh, create uh, to actually reach those visions those visions or goals yeah I, I think some of the the steps to um, to to uh, reach these sort of larger grandiose goals are setting milestones that and and also you know gauging whether or not you've reached your milestones and I think part of that is being able to interact with your students on a, on a daily basis and really investing in the students themselves. I like to interact with, with the people in my lab, you know, very daily. I, I like to have a small group. You know, a lot of times people are trying to figure out, do I want to have a lab with five people in it or ten people, or do I want to have one of these grandiose labs? I definitely am more comfortable with a, with a smaller lab. And um, initially I had students that were very uh, introverted and they didn't interact and I found out one of my students had a real soft spot for chocolate so I put this chocolate bowl in my office and she came in every day and we talked science uh, every day around 11 o'clock when she would come in so I always have a bowl of chocolate here I always have a pot of coffee and I think it fosters sort of the interaction with the students and we can actually talk about the specific experiments they're gonna do and um, what the barriers are but I, you know, you're never going to reach these big grandiose goals if you don't break them down into feasible milestones and hammer away at them uh, every day. That sounds uh, ridiculously amazing. I love how you kind of realize early on to focus more on a smaller, smaller lab. And I like how you just said this approach that you've taken, kind of like with the uh, small chocolates. And I don't know if anybody knows this, like I've run and managed uh, small teams, larger teams, and one of the things is just some of the small details and kind of putting the humanistic face on the people, uh, on the sciences. And especially this field has a tendency of attracting much more of like the introverted uh, personalities. And what was it about you that you kind of realized that, what was it about you that kind of realized that you can use some of the small details? Like, I think some, to some people that doesn't come natural. I mean, like, let's maybe uh, have a pot of coffee, we can talk about this. I know we talk about it, in, uh, I've talked about this in the, in the past in psychology, when they have like small children or people that are more introverts to open up, they usually have a small like type of games to distract them and kind of help them create a more comfortable uh, environment. You seem to kind of naturally gravitate towards that. How did you know about that and what were some of those, uh, was this kind of an inherent skill that you knew or learned? I, you know, I, I think it was an inherent skill. I mean, I, there are some people who are people individuals and I, I think that I get that from my parents. My father was a politician. He, he worked well with, with people. But um, I really enjoy the one-on-one -on -one interaction and really 
you know, when it comes to postdocs, technicians, and fellows, I just don't think we can give everyone the same haircut because they're all different personalities, and you have to figure out what motivates them. So, you know, I, I, I do try and inter interact with them individually, and when I have an opportunity to put them first, you know, if I really feel like I've been invited to give a talk and they're ready to do it, I think giving them that opportunity to do that, to shine, uh, when there's opportunities to lead in the lab, to give them leadership positions. Uh, I also think, you know, one of the problems with initial investigators is that they can really get caught in their silos of their just, you know, coming up with a research plan that's, that's their own. And you know, it's a great opportunity to get the fellows, the postdocs, and the research technicians to get their input and make the, um, the, the concepts stronger. So I think that by interacting individually with, with people, you know, focusing on some of the details, um, I think it makes the lab stronger uh, altogether. Um, there, there were times when I've had introduced new techniques in the lab, new microscopy techniques, and I've, we've sent students to Woods Hole to do some of the state-of-the-art methods. They come back feeling like they're a leader in the lab. They can uh, lead this new technology that's going to help transform some of our ideas. And in the same sense, we add innovation to our grants and innovation to our, our concepts. Wow, so you actually help and guide them into more of a leadership type of position, kind of like helping them to make that same transition that you made years ago. I think that's kind of something that like a lot of people don't realize is that they will become like your legacy. Would you agree with me on that one? Yeah, I would agree with them. I mean, you, you also, you get to a point in your career where seeing your students and the people who were in your lab do well and in some cases do better than you is more of an accomplishment than some of the things that you're doing actually I mean it, it's just a I think it's a transition that you know every PI at some point um, goes through or, or should go through where we have battles and we have barriers every day we're trying to get that paper published that just got rejected you know we've just gotten uh, a grant beat up uh, but you know, seeing our students do well um, sometimes makes some of that pain go away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't go away totally. <laughs> well, thank goodness you're working on the, ba uh, the Band-Aid of the blood. <laughs> <laughs> I need a bigger Band-Aid. <laughs> well, let's go back a little bit further when you actually were making that transition to securing your own, uh, securing your own position. One of the things that I find that I've with I've worked with some of my uh, previous clients and uh, uh, co-workers and collaborators in the past is that they kind of struggle at the early onset to look for and find some of these good talented. I mean, right now, Joe, you've had some amazing, amazing people that are on your team. However, uh, can you talk a little bit about that trans that, that transition trying to even find somebody because you're at a certain point where nobody really knows who Joseph Italiano, Joseph Italiano is, but how do you get, how did you get your name out there? How did you attract these talents? And were there some crazy cases back, back in the days? 
<laughs> yeah, there were some crazy cases. Um, so I found for me, um, because I really like interacting with um, people and I like the small groups, I've tended to gravitate towards the small meetings um, like the Gordon Research Conferences where you have you go to a setting where you're not distracted again common theme and there's you know 150 200 of the world's experts at one location and i really think um when you go to these like gordon research conferences as opposed to a large meeting like the ash meeting you really get to know the 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 students and the professors in the in the field and that's where i i interacted with a lot of the uh graduate students before they came in my lab and I think these meetings are really the best meetings to to go to when you're when you're starting your lab. The people who are going to be reading your papers and evaluating them, the people who are going to be reviewing your uh, grants, and the people who are your potential postdocs, they're all there for five days. You have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with your collaborators with uh, the future leaders in the field as well as your enemies and it's just a great experience I think for for everyone I think some of the best collaborations that I set were, were that I established were there and some of the connections I made with younger students uh, were there I you know I've also seen um, I've never taught at Woods Hole but you know, I was a student there multiple times. You know, that's a that's a great place if you can teach in some of those courses. I think you interact with some of the best talented students uh, in the world, and you're you're able to recruit. So I think overall, really promoting go, going to events where you're going to interact with a lot of these students, and importantly, you know, realizing what's going to be a good fit and what's not going to be a good fit because it's a relationship. You know, doing a a postdoc or, or graduate school, you know, can be a, a three-year, five-year relationship. So, figuring out if you can get along with that individual is, is really important. So, if let's just say you're at a breakfast table after a good uh, talk, and some student, some new graduating uh, graduate student, is looking for a postdoc, and and he or she's just kind of like talking to you. Would it be kosher just to even say, "Hey, let's"? Or if you're interested, I have a position opening. Or was that? Would you find that a little too forward? Or how would you make that kind of introduction to like, "I want you to join my my team." You know, it's more of a sort of gentle, gentler in, introduction where you <laughs> you see if there are common interests, what the student wants to do, if they're if they're excited by the biology that you're doing in your lab. If you think they would be a good fit with the team, you, know, you had indicated before, you know, about problems. You know, you really want to make sure that you don't um, bring someone in who's not a good fit or someone who's going to um, cause a lot of difficulty. So, you know, sometimes a really strong personality can not be a good fit in your lab and can, can disrupt the whole makeup and I'm sure you've seen that too especially managing a, a, a larger lab mm -hmm. um, you know it's difficult we've had some younger students in the lab and some of them who uh, I wish had trained more and you know we had an individual at one point he just couldn't culture the cells that we needed for for almost six months and it really it really wreaked havoc in the lab and uh, everyone was angry because they didn't have the megakaryocytes to do that so um, I think 
trying to do as much due diligence and calling um, previous employees is uh, is really important. You know, sometimes when you're starting a lab, you don't have a ton of money, so you may not be able to hire highly experienced research technicians. So there is a little bit of pain there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, would, I prefer to train people from ground zero, uh, you know, as opposed to them bringing some of their bad techniques into the lab. Um. So I've definitely heard that strategy before <laughs> from time to time to where there are people with really great, great uh, skill set, but they do have a tendency to, one, uh, have a certain skill set that can't, uh, can't adjust or change to your science, or two, they have a tendency to be a little bit more pricey and expensive. So you're saying that you've been taking like more of the leveraging uh, leveraging the inexperience and teaching and training them so they're just more or less just going in to wanting to learn from you is that correct yeah that, that that's correct i mean i think also the the timing of how long you can have someone in your lab as a as a research uh, technician a lot of our uh, technicians are students who are taking a year off and I use the word off loosely between college and graduate school or college and uh, medical school um, it's certainly helpful to have these people for a couple years if you can because it, it it takes a couple months already to train them so uh, there, there already is some some downtime there but I do prefer to uh, to have students come who uh, that we've trained, that we can train, and who don't bring uh, some of their problems. Now, that being said, sometimes people come from a, another lab and they uh, have a different way of doing it, and uh, we find out that it's better, and we just adopt it in the lab, and, and there it's a win-win for everyone. Now, we talked a lot about the student side of things, and I think a big part of starting a lab is having a very good, solid, successful uh, postdoc. Um, we all know there are tons of postdocs out there that can be really, really good and really, really bad. However, some of the more talented postdocs have a tendency to like gravitate towards the more senior, established, 20-year lab. Because, I mean, for the most part, they're trying to establish themselves as well. As What were some of your skill sets and or strategies for actually recruiting good, solid postdocs, but also realizing the limitations of... Uh, of just even your own early early on reputation you know it can be a, a bit challenging trying to um, recruit students away from some of the uh, more bigger established labs one of the approaches that I did was offer the students a project you know a very you know enticing project where they could take over a whole niche in the field and also you know one of my approaches has always been to because uh, there's so much failure in science, to offer the students uh, two projects. One that was a little more feasible, more low-hanging fruit, where they could, at the end of the day, they knew they were going to have you know, a, a decent publication, but also offering them and enticing them with a uh, project that would be the you know the new, next holy grail for the field of platelet production that um, so that they could you know they can work on these two projects um, simultaneously. I mean I think a lot of the students too that that I'm seeing now are becoming very savvy. Some of them don't want to go to the big labs because 
you know, they, they, they realize there's a lab here that has, you know, 50 postdocs in it and the PI who's a Nobel laureate just can't manage all of them. And he's got them split up into two rooms and well, he visits the one room of the students he likes and, you know, the other one doesn't, you know, receive the attention. So I, I think that some of the students um, are realizing uh, that some of the PIs just can't manage labs that are that big. Um, and it's important to have that discussion, I think, with the students for them to figure out what type of environment they'll excel in. If they're not highly independent, going to a lab that's huge is, is not really beneficial to them either. Uh, so you're kind of like offering them that, like, that focus, that one-on-one -on -one, uh, attention. But one of the things I really like is your strategy with the contrast between small successes kind of uh, fuels the the big risks the low hanging fruits will like kind of encourage them to really take on some of those big risks because i've seen this in the past where they've offered really enticing big risks risky projects but you'll have a postdoc will focus all their effort on that big project and unfortunately those big project risks comes with the risk itself and ultimately, they kind of like fail in that. And I, I actually as 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 well, kind of offer that that advice to other people. Like the small fruits really, really can fuel that long term investment into day in, day out, staying in within the lab. Because sometimes our postdocs can uh, can can go through this burnout. But speaking of burnouts, how do you maintain your your time I think money is one thing but I think the one thing that is not replenishable that I think a lot of young investigators quickly quickly find out is their time mm -hmm. spread what are some like techniques and strategies or uh, that you've used to like help maintain and manage your your time early on and and I'm sure now it's gotten a little bit easier but would you say kind of like habits systems techniques or certain types of technical or administrative help that has come into play? Yeah, I mean, for me, organization has always been a struggle. You know, my my, my wife is a librarian, so she <laughs> she Dewey decimals and organizes our, our life at home, so I, I don't need to do it there. But for me, initially, it was a real struggle to try and manage my time. And setting schedules for me and, and uh, having to-do lists is, is really essential. And I learned that initially from Judah Falkman, you know, who was, you know, one of the, the greatest scientists around. And he would walk around with these uh, note cards in his, really? in his pocket all the time. Just, you know, he'd finish one meeting and know exactly where he need, would need to be next. So I've tried to be as organized as possible to really um, make those lists and prioritize, you know, what really needs, you know, put the things that really need to be done at the top of the list there. Um, the other thing that has helped me a lot recently is just turning off my email and trying to check it three times a day. You know, we're constantly distracted by our email now, by our text messages on the phone. So trying to write a grant or write a paper while you're uh, you know, consistently anticipating that next email I found is, is you know, is definitely, definitely distracting. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I found, um, not just from an organization, but from a strategy, we were talking earlier about low-hanging fruit and high-hanging fruit, you know, funding is really um, 
you know, another major issue as opposed to uh, in addition to organizing your time. And feasts and famines can cause all sorts of trouble. So trying yeah. to level that out. And I think um, uh, along the same line, having, you know, going for low-hanging fruit for grants and, you know, shooting for the stars is also a possibility. And you're right, that low-hanging fruit for the funding also, you know, you want to have some sort of um, consistency. So I have to admit, you know, there have been times when I've been approached by uh, drug companies that might want me to look at, uh, they have a drug that's causing thrombocytopenia. And it may not be that, you know, you know, great deep question that, that we want to address, but we've worked on that project so that we could help um, pay our bills when we might be in between grants. So I think having consistent funding and trying out to remove some of the feast and famine is, was also really important uh, when I was starting my lab. Wow, that's actually a good strategy to explore different type of collaborations, even with, the, uh, with far, uh, farm and industry. And so, we're actually good, nice segue into the financial side of things, and I'm sure the audience is kind of curious. And like, especially in this day and age where funding is getting stripped and competition is getting higher, and technology is getting more expensive. So, how are you balancing that out? In the sense of, do you do you still find yourself keeping focus on being able to? do the science that you like versus doing, say, the quote-unquote safe science or the science that some of the the grant funding agencies looking to fund. I think this is one of those things that uh, a lot of young investigators are struggling with to come up with their R1s, to come up with uh, their own uh, private donors. Are, are private donors becoming more like a, a common way to look at being able to just do the kind of work that you like? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely are trying to adapt. We realize that the NIH is not going to fund 100% of our research like it did in the, in the past. It's, it's just not as reliable as it's been. And so we've been branching out, interacting with, with uh, drug companies. A lot of companies out there have drugs that cause platelet counts to drop as one of their side effect. And, you know, like I said, we initially did it, thought it could bring additional funding in the lab. And now it's becoming one of the, you know, major scientific questions there. So it was kind of interesting to, to sort of see that evolution. But we are definitely um, becoming a little more dynamic and looking at uh, things that we didn't think we would look at. And so, you know, you ask are you doing the science you want to do? You know, initially when we started some of these projects, I didn't think that was the science we really wanted to do. We were doing it to help the keep, keep the lab running. But now um, the questions are uh, becoming more interesting, and we're realizing that we can make an impact because when we understand some of the uh, mechanisms that are happening, there's more patients who have cancer uh, who can get treatment and, and stay on the drug a little longer. So sometimes um, there, there's some some added benefit. I, I do think that we are spending a lot more time writing grants than than doing the research. And um, you know, if if you want to treat people with low platelet count, you need to do the research. You don't need to just be writing the grants. So it's certainly a level of uh, frustration that I think a lot of the PIs are, uh, are beginning to feel. 
Yeah, and that's a definitely a, a big, huge balance beyond trying to keep the lights on and actually like do, uh, living day in, day out. Do you find that sometimes your people can help significantly in that area? Or do you find that you need to do, give more attention, uh, attention to them, to like train them? I right now have a, a lot of uh, senior people in my group, so I, I feel like with them, a lot of my attention is helping them uh, reach their goals. You know, whether it be becoming an entrepreneur and you know starting a uh, biotechnology company, or helping an MD PhD develop their own lab and establish their own R01. Again, this comes back to it is a, a large investment in time, but you know, seeing your students do well is you know one of the ultimate goals I think for a PI in the academic setting. Oh, back to the original uh, <laughs> uh, point of the position. It's teaching. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's uh, that says a lot about you, not only just as a a professor but just as an amazing person because I think that it's really hard especially during trying times to focus on the end of the day why are you here um, the, the point of trying to better on people but I think that says a lot about even your your own legacies and I say this because I've talked to some of your uh, previous people and they've they've put you on uh, on a high pedestal. Do you find that that's kind of been helpful for you for finding and recruiting new people? And and I wanted to kind of like segue that into the selling, how you kind of like sell your science, sell it to to, rec to get more recruited, uh, re talented recruitments, or even to getting more money. Yeah, I, I think, um you know, word of mouth. I think, you know, the, when the students are thinking about coming to a lab, they really spend a lot of time talking to the other technicians, postdocs, and, and even people who've, who've left the lab. So I think they do do a lot of due diligence and are spend a lot of time sort of in, interrogating whether or not they, they want to go to that lab. So mm -hmm. if you do have a good relationship with your students who are there, the ones in the future, I think it definitely um, bodes well for for recruiting new individuals. I, I think it's important also, you know, going to these meetings and marketing yourself. Uh, if you can give talks that the students leave and if they've really enjoyed the talk and it's been clear and, and inspiring, I think that also is another way to uh, help recruit individuals for your lab. So, uh, you know, every time we try and, and do a presentation, we try and, you know, think about how can we how can we make it different? You know, we do a lot of microscopy in the lab, so we show a lot of movies and we uh, mm. try and uh, use some of our uh, slides to be a little more inspiring. Kind of visual stimulations. And I liked the, the point that you actually used the, the business word, marketing. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, do you find that what you're doing is running a business? Yeah, I think we are. We're, we're running a business. You know, our our product may not always be, you know, a a product that you can you know touch and and see, but some of it is knowledge that 
we hope will be translated into medicine at, at some point. But it, but it is running a business. You know, we, we have a lot of barriers. We have, um, you know, management issues that we need to deal with. We have funding issues. And we need to make sure that we're productive and that we're generating data that is going to transform the, uh, the field of, of hematology. Yeah, so I was kind of like segueing that into the business side of things and particularly the administrative side. And I know that uh, at academic institutions, hospitals, um, universities and, and such that they have their own business mindset on how the institution should be run and trying to balance that with each of the individual investigators that are within the, uh, those institutions. Do you find that a kind of a, a difficult uh, um, tennis match, if you will, to, to play, to make sure that you're meeting the university's needs, your, your tenure track needs, and being able to make sure that your own science gets, uh, gets met? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we're more, we're increasingly being pulled in many different directions. Um, all of the regulatory work that we need to do for conflict of interest, anim animal regulations, interactions with um, human subjects. You can spend your entire day just dealing with that and not doing science. Uh, <laughs> So, and, and I really think that the universities need to do a better job providing support for the PIs um, with that so that they aren't spending all their time doing that and actually focusing on biology and, and curing disease. You know, these institutions take very large indirect costs, and so it, I think that they should find some more efficient ways to, to take that money and provide more support with with some of these things that are important, but that don't require us to spend so much time with. That's a lot on overhead, and at the end of the day, it's actually the science that actually brings in the money. I think this is one of the things that sometimes gets lost in a big, huge academic machinery. What were some of the things that you learned in, in your past that you're like, I'm so glad that I learned that from, uh, say, like you said, Judy, uh, Judy Folkman, and being able to not reinvent the wheel. Like, for example, I remember I was talking to one investigator that I was working with, and she was saying, you know, it'd be so much easier if there was just a template or animal protocols that would be nice just to follow. It doesn't have to be precise, just something, the template, because I see the protocols here and I'm guessing at it. And she says, that guessing takes so long and it's so frustrating. And I get it wrong and I've spent like three months trying to get this approval. When somebody gave it to me, uh, gave me a sample, it was so much easier. And then that's been recycled over and over again. And so yeah, I, I've done that and I, you know, it's a good point. The first time you're doing these protocols, you're just, you know, it's a shot in the dark and you don't know what you're doing. So, it, you know, if the, you know, institutions gave you a better feel of exactly what they're looking for, you know, whether it be a biosafety form or it be a, a, a protocol for regulation or even help with making budgets, you know, just some sort of a template to start with would help streamline the process quite a bit. So 
little bit more focus on the uh, checklist. So I actually kind of find that funny considering uh, this is Brigham Women's where Atul Gawande uh, did his practice. (laughs) 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 Well, I don't want to go uh, take up too much of your busy schedule and I want to thank you so much for joining us, but do you have some parting... uh, parting thoughts and bequeathing some good knowledge onto some of the future young scientists out there? You know, it takes a certain mindset to, to be in this business. You never get used to getting your papers rejected, but, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes we learned we didn't get a grant or we've got a paperback that has massive revisions and, you know, had some, you know, administrative issues and protocols that I had to work on all day. You know, a student will walk into my office uh, with some interesting data and some, you know, new hypothesis and where, you know, I I may not be, you know, feeling that great. I'm just completely energized by, you know, the student coming in and the the concept of of the new biology. And I think that's really what drives most of us at the end of the day, essentially. Back to the science. <laughs> and that's when it comes down to the mindset of the interest and the genuine interest in science. Yeah. I, I, really, I really like that a lot because I think you're right because there's so much business administrative kerfuffle, if you will, that mm-hmm. it really, the science is actually keeps pulling you right back into that lab. It is, you know, and you learn to do the marketing, you learn to do the management, you learn to do the business but it really is a science. It's the it's that idea that for uh, a couple minutes you know something that no one else in the entire world knows, and that's just a, such an invigorating and exciting exciting feeling for me, and I think for a lot of the PIs essentially. Nice, nice. I'm going to leave you with one last question. What would be your definition of a life science leader? the definition of that would be an amazing scientist and an outstanding teacher who continually transforms the field and is constantly thinking about where that field's going to be 10, 15, 20 years from now and how he's going to bring it to that level. Uh, scientific visionary. Love it, love it. Joe, Thank you so very much for coming on on this radio podcast uh, with me. I think this is a lot of great uh, content and information that could help the greater community. And I would love for people to definitely visit your your website and your page and contact with you. I'll definitely leave all that information in the show notes for them. So thank you so very much again. Thank you, Damien. My pleasure. And we'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Bye. What a great scientist and an amazing leader. Thanks again, Joe. If you'd like to know more about Joe Italiano and his research, please go check out our show notes, and you'll see a link to all of his great published material and laboratory information at www.leadinglifescience.org forward slash episode three. Thank you again for listening to the Leading Life Science radio podcast. We'd love to hear from you, the listener, so please leave a comment or suggestions about questions you'd like to hear from our guests that could help you on your journey. 
Also, please let us know what leaders in science inspire you to pursue a career in the life sciences. Till the next time, happy sciencing. I'm your host, Damian Wilpitz of the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast.